declutter, and we're talking about getting rid of the things that are in your way. And there are lots of things, of course, that we could talk about in this series. We're going we're gonna to hit on, on three big ones, self-doubt, people-pleasing, and guilt and shame. Clutter has a way of becoming invisible over time, doesn't it? The familiar becomes invisible in our lives. That's just the way our brains work. Our brains are wired to be attracted to that next shiny new thing, something novel. And clutter can become familiar and become invisible over time. And so you go through your daily life, maybe you buy something and you bring it home and you you leave the bag over in the corner maybe, or you're reading a book and you just kind of leave it there, or there's a plate over here that gets left out, or maybe you moved recently like us and, and... you know, there's a, that box that just, you know, just takes forever to unpack, and, and you just go through life, and not everything gets put in, in, put in its place, and it becomes invisible to you and, until what? When somebody comes over to visit you. Or, or maybe you just invite somebody over, and then you start to look at your place through their eyes, in a sense, right? And that, that clutter that was invisible becomes visible to you. You see, oh man, I got to clean that up before they come over here. Or if you're like me, it's when they walk through the front door. And then that's when you see the clutter that you left. It doesn't happen to me anymore because my wife's an organizer, but, but before we were married, it definitely did. And they would walk through the door and I'd be embarrassed because I hadn't really cleaned and I didn't see it until, until they came over. And so clutter has a way of, be, of becoming invisible until it's not. Until our eyes are opened and we see that clutter and we decide it's time to clean house. And so today we're talking about getting rid of the clutter of self-doubt. And like any kind of clutter, self-doubt becomes invisible over time. And we don't even realize it's there. Um, It affects our lives. It's still on our way. We still have to kind of navigate around it. And, And and. it affects us in ways we don't even really fully understand. It's invisible to us until it's not. And when you actually see that self-doubt or feel that self-doubt, that's when you realize this thing is robbing you of joy. It's, it's the opposite of sparking joy. It's robbing you of joy. It's holding you back from things that you really could do. And self-doubt is, is uh, really such a plague because self-doubt can even threaten your very calling in life. The thing that you are designed to do, you're shaped to do, you're equipped to do it, you're, you're educated, you have experience, you're naturally gifted at it, you're passionate about it, it means something to you, it's a calling. And self-doubt can actually threaten you from ever fulfilling that calling. It's invisible until it's not. And so maybe you're at a place in life where you're just starting to feel the self-doubt. You're just starting to see that clutter of self-doubt. Maybe you're at a place in life where you're sick of it. I had some people contact me this week, actually, message me on Facebook and say, you know what, I lo- I'm so looking forward to this series because I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of dealing with, with self-doubt and these other things that we're talking about. So for you, maybe you're ready to clean house. And so let's get to it. By self-doubt, let's get a definition. I mean the lack of confidence in yourself or your abilities, the lack of confidence either in yourself as a person or in your abilities. And we're going to address both of those things today. It may be related to a particular cause that's important to you, something you feel like it is your calling or your dream, and you doubt your ability to to do whatever it is that you feel called to. And self-doubt creeps in when you don't get the results you want. You have high hopes and expectations, and it doesn't quite happen that way, and self-doubt creeps in. Maybe you feel like self-doubt is just all pervasive in your life. Maybe it's always there for you. Maybe it's not connected to a particular cause or task. It's just like you always feel like, man, you're second-guessing yourself, and and you just feel like maybe other people get it right and you don't, or you're just not not that confident in life, and you find yourself apologizing a lot. And and maybe self-doubt for you, it, it just feels like it's connected to who you are. And maybe you're tired of that and you're ready to clean house. Maybe you feel outnumbered. And you feel tempted to, to doubt yourself because of your views. Your views on spirituality or faith, your views on politics. And you, you, you doubt yourself. because you, you look around and you're like, man, am I crazy? Am I the crazy one? You look around at what's, uh, what's happening and you're like, man, is, is it me? And, and you're tempted to self-doubt. Or maybe you doubt your ability to have a healthy spiritual life. There are millions of people in America now who are what I call spiritually homeless. They're not really able to find a community 
where they feel like this really represents their understanding of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus doesn't really match their values. They, they see religion doing a lot of harm in the world. And they're just kind of looking around and saying, you know, I don't know if I could ever really be a, a, a Christian. I don't know if I could use that word. I don't know if I could really follow Jesus. I don't know if I could take the Bible seriously. I don't know if I could really have a healthy spiritual life, at least in that tradition. You know, especially if you come from that. Maybe you, maybe you doubt your ability to have a healthy spiritual life. By the way, um, in three weeks, when, when Lent begins on March 1st, we're going to start a new series called Jesus, the Gospel According to Mark. And we're going to look at who Jesus is and what was probably the first gospel written about him. How many of you realize there are a lot of versions of Jesus in our society? And so maybe if you feel like you're doubting your ability to have a healthy spiritual life, maybe that series is for you. And we're going to look at who Jesus is in the original biography of Jesus. But, so maybe that would help. But one of the things that's most threatening about self-doubt is it can come at you slowly without you realizing it. It's like it's clutter just building up around your house little by little. And, and you go, maybe you go into a career feeling pretty good about your, your preparation, your education. You go into a new job. And then you have this boss who just slowly wears you down. It's like the it's just slowly, you know, self-doubt just creeps in. There's this remark here or this metric here or this, you know, brush off here. And, and even, even being in a bad work situation, it can just slowly creep in. And then you finally look around and see it. And you're like, oh, how did this happen? You know, I've been doubting myself and, and, and questioning my own abilities because of this environment. I've been in, so maybe it's been, it's been creeping up for a long time and cluttering for a long time. There's something I've observed in, um, and this is a generalization, of course, and you've got to be careful with those because this applies to men too, of course, but there's something I've observed um, in women as they reach maybe late 30s, 40s, 50s, sometimes even 60s. And I call these ladies, when I, and I, it's, I spot these ladies I, I call them power women because they're women who have gone through life apologizing for everything. And they felt like they just had to be invisible or um, you know, not, not stick up for themselves and, and, and not speak up and, and you know, get used to some degree and maybe mistreated to some degree. And then they reach a certain age where they're just done with that. They're tired of it. They're tired of that, that clutter in their lives, and they just clean house. I call them power women because they're, they're ladies who just maybe for the first time in their lives, they decide, I'm sick of self-doubt. I'm sick of living under somebody's thumb. I'm sick of shame and guilt, and I'm ready to be free and be who, who God created me to be. Of course, that applies to men too. As, as we grow older, we can gain confidence, but for men, sometimes the struggle is the opposite. Sometimes we get older. And we're more susceptible to the self-doubt. Again, generalizations. And we're careful with those around here. But self-doubt can creep up over time. And so I want to look at somebody in the Bible who struggled with crippling self-doubt. In the ancient book of Exodus, chapters 3 and chapter 4, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And God heard their cries. And God wanted to liberate them. But God needed a leader who would be able to lead those people out of Egypt, a leader who could stand up to the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, and could say to, to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, could speak truth to power, let my people go. God was looking for a leader who could do that. And so God calls out to this man named Moses from a shrub that is on fire but it's not consumed in the fire. And I'm just going to read these, not the entire two chapters, uh, but selected verses from Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4 and see um, how Moses responded to God calling to him. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord, did not, the, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? It is, is it not I, the Lord? There's some ancient theology there that we could unpack in, in future sermons. God says, now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. Now watch what happens next. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. So God calls out to Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, and Moses raises three objections to, to God's call. God has obviously made a mistake. And Moses is like, God, obviously my paperwork got put in the wrong pile. You know, my resume was meant to be over in that pile, and it got put in the wrong one. The angels need to keep your desk cleaner. So there's been some mistake made here. God, I, I just want to be a shepherd. I just want to lead sheep. Sheep will follow anybody. I can jump over that bar. I can handle that. But you're calling me to face the most powerful person in the world and to lead people. And God, I just can't do that. For all of these reasons, I can't do that. And doesn't your heart, can you kind of identify when we read that phrase, when Moses says, God, please send somebody else. Can you feel the self-doubt in that phrase? I find, when I was you know, making these slides, I found myself getting a little emotional. I, I could just, I can feel that. Please, send somebody else. Could somebody else do this? And so Moses has this, this clutter of self-doubt in his life. And here are his three objections. So they're going to be on the screen. First, he says, who am I? Who am I to fulfill this calling? That's a question about identity. And then he says, what if others doubt me? What if they're like, you know, what are you doing here? Why should we follow you? And that's really a question about others' opinions of me. And then finally, he says, what if I'm just not capable of doing what you've called me to do? I'm not a good speaker. I can't do this. Please send somebody else. That's really a question about abilities. Aren't those the questions behind your self-doubt? I feel like those are the questions behind mine. And, and so how does God deal with those? When Moses, and you can, you can feel his pain, when he, when he brings up the, these objections, what does God say to him? How does God speak to the self-doubt in his life? Well, first, the question, who am I? It's a question of identity. But implied in that question is that there is something about me that is not worthy of this task. This isn't about abilities. This is something about me. There's something wrong with me. I have a lack of confidence in me. I'm just not good enough for some reason to do this. I'm not worthy of this. Something is lacking in me. I don't have what I need to have. 
in order to do this thing that you're calling me to do. I need to be somebody different. If I was somebody different than me, then it would be okay. But I'm me, and I just can't do this. Can you identify with that? Is there this voice somewhere in your head, some, some loop in there, that just asks this question, who am I? Who, who, and really, it's the inflection that makes it. Who am I? Who, who am I to do this thing? Who am I to succeed in my career? Who am I to have a good relationship? Who am I to, you know, to settle down and, and have the life that, that I dream of? Who am I to do this thing that I feel like I should do and, and, and get involved in this cause that I, should, that I should really devote myself to? Who am I? I can't tell you how many times I have asked that question. Uh, I started, the, the first church that, that uh, Hannah and I started was back in 2012. And we had the first monthly preview service for that church in the Harkins Theater up on uh, the corner of Gilbert and Germain. And, and so you walk in and, I mean, first of all, you walk in and you get hungry for popcorn. I mean, you know, you're like, uh, there's just the whole, the whole movie thing comes in. Um, and so it, you know, it didn't quite feel like church. And it was, you know, we're the setup and it was, it was uh, intensive. But uh, as people were uh, starting to walk into the building... For the service. This is about, you know, 20 minutes before the service started. A few people were straggling in, and I ducked into the bathroom to change clothes, like I do now, because it helped set up and, and needed to change clothes. I, I went into the bathroom, saw all the change, and uh, preachers are prone to overstatement, and you probably know that. I can promise you this is not an overstatement. As I was changing clothes, I was leaning against the stall, the ba- the, you know, the, the side of the stall, and trying as hard as I possibly could not to throw up. And, and there are people walking in the building, and like we put all this time and work, we had raised all kinds of money and gotten a, gotten a huge team together, and, and it was working, and things were looking good, and I'm, I'm picturing there are people greeting outside, and everybody's taking their places, and the band just finished warming up, and they don't know the pastor's locked himself in the stall trying not to vomit. That, that went on, again, this is, this is not exaggeration, that went on for six months. Every Saturday night, every Sunday morning, it was all I could do. My stomach was in knots, and it was all I could do not to get sick. And it took me a long time to figure out what was the cause of that, and it was this question. Who am I? Who am I to pastor a church? Who am I to to speak? Why should anybody care? Why would anybody want to hear me give a sermon? You know, who, who am I to do anything? There's just this voice in my head, and there's all kinds of psychological literature about where those voices can come from. You know, a lot, childhood, things that were said to you or things that you perceived other people felt about you and, and, you know, difficult relationships you've had. Maybe somebody did kind of plant that in your brain, but, but I just, I continually ask myself that question, who am I? Who am I to do this? And a, a breakthrough that actually helped me was, I went to this uh, event with Rob Bell, and, and most of you probably know who he is. He's a pretty well-known author, an amazing speaker, communicator, and um, he was sharing in a small group of people when he, about when he first uh, wrote his first book, and he said while he was sitting down on his computer trying to write his first book, it's called Velvet Elvis, I'm sure a lot of you probably read it, he said half of his mental energy as he wrote was spent asking him the question, who am I to write a book? Asking himself the question, who am I to, to write this book? Am I an author? Who am I to do this? And, and he realized it's a shame question. It's a question of shaming yourself because, for whatever reason. Maybe you perceive other people feel that way about you or you feel that way about you. Who am I to do this? And, and he said he finally talked to somebody who was a mentor to him who said, if you just stop asking that question and write, you'll be fine. Just, just stop asking who am I and just do it. Just, just write. Instead of asking yourself, can I write? Just write. And it's all going to work out. And he said that was the breakthrough for him, and it was the same thing for me. I realized just showing up, going into the bathroom stall and changing clothes, not throwing up, and coming out and, and giving the message and just putting one foot in front of another, that's what, that's what got us through. And the shame question, the who am I question, was just a waste of time. But anyway, how does God answer that question for Moses? When Moses says, who am I? Who am I that I should do this? God's answer to him is, I 
will be with you. I'm going to go with you. And those five words contain an enormous amount of meaning, don't they? I will be with you. You are not alone. God says to Moses, you are my representative. You are partnering with me. That's the third value that we have at our church here. You can partner with God to make a difference with your life. And so when Moses is like, who am I? And he's filled with shame. God says, you're mine. I am with you. You belong to me. You represent me. There's a professor of psychology, uh, David Johnson. He writes in a book called Reaching Out, Interpersonal Effectiveness and Self-Actualization. He writes, building a strong identity includes establishing a superordinate identity. It's one of those million-dollar psychology words, superordinate identity. And he goes on to unpack that. By superordinate identity, he means to, to belong to something bigger than yourself. That for everybody, part of the answer is, who, who am I? Who are you? You're, what is your identity? The answer to that is that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. We have friends. We belong to a group of people, a community or family or friends that you have or a church. So I belong to a group of people bigger than me, and I, I'm, that's part of my identity. But as a follower of Jesus, a superordinate identity means I belong to God. Something bigger than me. And the, the New Testament teaches extensively on your identity as a follower of Jesus. There's, there's um, terminology in the New Testament that scholars call fictive kinship. Fictive kinship. And what that means is it, it's... It's viewing other followers of Jesus like a family, like kin. And so you have the terms brother and sister that are used in the New Testament. And God is called father. And, in, in, of course, it's a patriarchal world, and, and God's not a man or a woman. God doesn't have a body. But that's, those are family terms, if you ever thought about it that way. And so in the New Testament, one of the core teachings of our faith is if, if you ask the question, who am I? The answer is, you're a child of God. You belong to God's family. You belong to God. And that's really the first answer before anything else. You know, before I'm a husband, father, pastor, what brother, whatever else. Before all of that, the first answer is, you're a child of God. Marianne Williamson uh, uh, writes uh, in a book called Return to Love, it's a quote that's, that's well-known, and, and I know um, lots of people have drawn inspiration from this. Marianne Williamson says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? And then she says, actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. And you playing small doesn't serve the world. A lot of times we feel like, you know, we're, we're supposed to be overly humble even. And so, and so bad theology can creep in and actually make our identity questions even worse. When, when we ask the shame question, who am I? Well, sometimes people are, are raised believing that following Jesus means that you're just a doormat. And, and turn the other cheek means that people can mistreat you. And being humble means that you just never acknowledge your own accomplishments. And so Marianne Williamson says a lot of us fall into this game of where we just want to act mousy. Where, where we just believe that it's good to see ourselves as less than or like we can't really accomplish anything in the world. And what she's saying here is when, when God calls you to do something and everybody has a calling. When, when God calls you to do something, you playing small does not serve this world. You downplaying your gifts and your skills and your education and your passion and, and your unique ability to do something does not serve this world. So where do those shame questions that we ask ourselves come from? Where do we first hear that question about our, our identity? Maybe it came from somebody else. And, and Moses, the second question to God, probably gets at, uh, at that. Moses asked God, what if other people doubt me? And so this is different from who am I. This question is, what if other people doubt me? What if they don't believe that you've sent me? And what if they're like, who are you to, you know, we're not going to follow you out of, out of Egypt. And, wh and why would Pharaoh listen to me? 
What if other people doubt me? Are the Oscars tonight? Is it tonight? Okay. So the Oscars tonight, and so um, the Oscars are tonight, and I'm reminded of some of the greatest movies that have ever been made. Um, one of those certainly would be Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, uh, starring Will Ferrell. And, and in Talladega Nights, if you remember, Will Ferrell is a race car driver, and he, he grows up to become this, this champion race car driver, and he, he is driven to succeed at, at racing because of messages that he internalized from his deadbeat dad when he was a child. He has this memory of his, of his absent father saying to him one time, Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're last. And so Ricky Bobby just repeats that message from his dad throughout his entire life, and it, it, it propels him, compels him to be a champion race car driver, and he repeats it to himself during these races because winning is all about pleasing his absent father who, who you know, planted this message in his brain when he was a kid. And then near the end of the movie, Ricky Bobby's dad comes back around and, and, and Ricky Bobby's had this crisis in his life and, and people have left him and, and, and he explains to his dad, you know, how this message just, of you're not, if you're not first, you're last, how this message just, just you know, propelled him throughout his life and, and his dad looks at him and he's like, Ricky Bobby, that doesn't even make sense. He's like, you could be second or third or fourth or even fifth. And then he walks off. And, and, and Ricky Bobby has this realization, wait, I've, I've based my entire life on this flippant comment that my drug-addicted dad made to me when I was a child. And, and, and now he's like, Ricky Bobby doesn't even make sense. And as ridiculous as the example is, let's be honest. How many messages have we internalized, and you don't even know it until something happens in your life and it's revealed to you, correct? We don't know what we don't know. It's invisible until it's not. And then we realize, where did I get that? This, this idea that other people would doubt me or, or, or that you know, if, I, if I try to fulfill my dream or go for this job or whatever, other people are going to doubt me, where did that come from? And a lot of times the, the messages that we received are every bit as stupid as Talladega Nights and Ricky Bobby and, and his, his deadbeat dad. They don't make any sense. But they, especially as a child, brain plasticity is a powerful thing. And what is said to us can affect us for years without us realizing it. You know, high school experiences. Some people loved high school. For other people, it's like a four-year torture chamber. And, and you just carry those messages with you. Or, or a, a marriage that was rough. Or a relationship that you're still detoxing from. Some experience with a bad boss and it, it caused you to doubt yourself. What if other people doubt me? Well, how does God answer Moses' question? What if other people doubt me? God answers him, you teach other people how to treat you. God, what if other people doubt me? What if Pharaoh won't listen? What if the Israelites won't follow me? And God's answer essentially is, you teach other people how to treat you. He, he says, what's that in your hand? It's a, it's a shepherd's staff. You throw it down. It turns into... A snake, and, and he's going to Pharaoh and his court in Egypt where Pharaoh uh, kept magicians around as advisors. And throwing a staff on the ground and it becoming a snake would be impressive. Like, oh, I see what you did there. Touche. That's something that could, could get their attention. And they would doubt him less if he was able to mimic the magic tricks of Pharaoh's court. And so God is saying to Moses, you do this thing and you're going to show them, I'm going to empower you to do this thing and you're going to show them how to treat you. You're going to, to demonstrate to them that you're somebody who deserves respect and you're worthy of their attention and, and, and they better listen up because something, because of who you are and what you can do, you're going to teach them how to treat you. And so if you're single and, and you would like to have a relationship with somebody, this may be one of the most important messages to internalize. You, you, you teach people how to treat you. If you're married, if you're not single, one of the most important messages you can internalize 
is you teach other people how to treat you. If you're not sure how to, how to navigate at work and you're tired of some things, well, you teach other people how to treat you. If you're somebody who, not by being a jerk about it, but if you're somebody who's confident enough to believe that you deserve respect and you believe people to, you, know, you, you deserve for people to treat you well, people will tend to do that. Not everybody, of course. There are bullies in the world, and you have to stand up to them. But you teach other people how to treat you. Will you continue to internalize negative messages from the past, and what if other people doubt me? Or can you internalize God's answer to Moses? And you teach other people how to treat you. We have somebody uh, here in the wall who is an actor, and uh, he, uh, he works a day job as well, but he's been pursuing an acting career for, for some time, and uh, his name is Drew, and uh, I asked him if he would share with us for a couple of minutes today about his experience of dealing with self-doubt as an actor, and just to give him a little bio here, he's a tech product manager, an actor, he's the father of a five-year-old daughter named Emily. He was born and raised in Baton Rouge and uh, currently lives in Gilbert. And uh, he's going to share about uh, how uh, he uh, deals with self-doubt as an actor. So let's welcome Drew Langhart. Come on up, man. Uh, how much time? He just asked me, how much time do we have for this? Uh, the Super Bowl's not on this week, man, so I don't know. Whatever you want. Uh, we, all the time you need, buddy. Um, so, first of all, thanks for being willing to share. Um, and uh, we just kind of messaged this week over Instagram, uh, the way the, the millennials do now. I'm doing my best. And, um, and just talked a little bit about uh, your journey and, and yeah, your daily life, but also in your, in your acting career so far. Because notoriously, you know, auditioning and so on, I mean, it's, it's, it's fraught with, with self-doubt. And so I appreciate you being willing to share, man. So as you go into, you know, an audition uh, and that, what, that brutal process, how do you deal with, um, with self-doubt as an actor? Yeah, the, one of the things you said first was, like, you have to just get through it and show that you can do it. Um, there was actually times where I would show up um, to an audition, sit in my car, and then just drive away because I was... I was too nervous or too scared to go in, thinking that, you know, like, uh, I'm not the most, like, fit guy, you know. I have all these, like, reasons why I shouldn't be doing it, and, like, I get this, I get a breakdown. They have, when you go audition, you get, like, these character breakdowns, and it's, like, handsome guy, very charismatic, or whatever. They explain, like, what it is, and in Arizona, it's a big commercial market, so that's what a lot of them are. So I show up, and I'm, like, they must have saw, like, a picture that they just interpreted it wrong, or... You know, some, some reason. So I, I get that. I'm like, I don't think they really were looking for me. So I've done that before. And I've had to, like, push myself to just go show up and do it. So sometimes it's, sometimes you, I mean, you've, you've driven away. Yeah. The soft doubt's really crept times, in. Yeah. And now you get in front of people or a camera or whatever. I mean, kind of paint the picture for us. Like yes. the typical audition around here. People, obviously, people are looking at you. What's going through your mind emotionally? And, and how do you deal with self-doubt in that moment? Yeah, so usually you show up. You walk in. There's a whole room of people who are all in for the same role. All of them look better than you. Um, no you look at their, you know, everybody's holding, you, you bring in like a headshot. It's like the, you know, eight by 10 on the backside, you have your resume. And you look, some people you look, you're looking at the, like the back of their resume and you see like a list that just keeps going. It should be like seven pages. Um, and you're just like, what do you, you know, how do you do this? Um, so, and, and then after that, you sit there, you hear people through the room, the walls are always paper thin. They're like auditioning in there. You hear the casting director be like, that was perfect. That's exactly what we wanted. Like, you know, and you're like, oh, great. And <laughs> um, so like the whole time you're sitting there, you're just beating yourself up. Um, and then you walk in and then, you know, you've got pretty much a setting like this. It's just you, casting director. Sometimes they bring in other people to audition with you, which makes it even worse. Um, and then you, you go through it and then you walk out. Um, I used to like walk out and be like, oh, these are all the things I did wrong. You know, here's you know, the reason why I'm not going to get this. Um, then I found out that the ones I doubted the most are the ones I booked for some reason. I don't know why, but I think it's because maybe I was just less um, trying to plan exactly how to do it and just going with the flow. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes that brings some, like, mistakes or some realness to it. Um, but, yeah, so that's, that's kind of like the process, though. And, and uh, um, do you want me to go into, like, how that's starting to change or oh, sure go okay, cool. whatever you want to sell us man um so once i started booking stuff though my confidence level started 
going up a little bit because I'm like, okay, I don't skip auditions anymore. I show up to every single one now. Um, and, uh, and that's because I started booking stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe people do want to work with me. Um, so now I show up. I don't even look at the other people in the room. I, I come in. I'm like, I deserve this. I've been working hard. You know, I sit there. I, all I do is I sit in the corner, try to stay away from everyone because actors love to talk to each other, which is distracting or not preparing. Uh, I sit there. I prepare for my audition. And I walk in extremely confident, and I do it. And, um, you know, there's uh, something my act, I have an acting coach I see weekly. And uh, he, he was a George Clooney's coach, Patrick Swayze, Michelle Pfeiffer, Tom Selleck. Like, the list goes on with all the people he was teaching. And he's like, yeah, if you don't show up confident in what you're going to do, then it's not believable. And the whole thing with acting is it's got to be believable. So if you're not confident, then you're, you're just going to – it doesn't work. So yeah. – Hearing that in my head, I kind of go in and I make sure I'm like extremely confident and go through it. Nice. So George Clooney's acting coach says, if you're not confident, it's not believable. That's right. Nice. I, and I, I'm going to add Drew Langhart to that list that you just <laughs> rattled off. George, George Clooney, Patrick Swayze, Drew Langhart. Boom. Yeah. I, I declare it so. And so, and now, then there are times you get the role. Oh, yeah, it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And so you, you're, you're there in the moment. These people have invested into you. Mm -hmm. and, and now that you're in the role... How do you deal with self-doubt? Okay, so let me walk through the process now when you get on set. So when you get to set, you, you have what's called a call time, and that's the call time you go into hair and makeup before you, like, go. And then usually it's, like, an hour and a half before they're even ready for you. Um, so you, you go through hair, and I'm just thinking, like, hair and makeup needs to take a while. Like, I don't want to get there because now I'm thinking they made a mistake in casting me because I'm still not right for this role. Um, there's always someone who's like a seasoned actor who's you're working with or, uh, here, I'll give you some specific examples. So, um, uh, I got a two. So I did this one commercial. It was like a $2 million commercial budget. I mean, huge wow. production for a commercial. Um, there was, um, I think they booked 12 actors on it. It was like a big thing. Um, and, uh, uh, 10 out of the 12 were LA actors that they flew in for the thing. And I'm like... So I kind of, there was like a little bit of confidence boost, like, hey, I beat out like LA actors for this role, but hey, I got in. So there, there was that piece that was like, kind of like killing my confidence level a little bit. But then there's, a, there's someone on a set called a first AD. And the first AD, which stands for first assistant director, they're the biggest like jerk on the set <laughs> by design because they're responsible for making sure everything gets done, the schedule's hit, everything's moving along. So I'm sitting there in hair and makeup, the first AD comes in, completely ignores them in there. He like, looks at the hair and makeup goes, he goes, when's this guy going to be ready? Because we're already behind. I need him in there like yesterday. I'm like, crap, I don't have time to prepare. Like, right. I don't, I'm not ready to go in there yet, you know? Um, and there's like someone like that, on, you know, every time you go to set, there's that guy. And then another example um, was uh, I did a commercial for the Texas Rangers, the baseball team. Um, and I go in, I'm like doing the commercial. The other guy who's in the commercial with me is about as experienced as I am. So I'm like, I'm good. I'm comfortable with this. Um, and um, then they're like, okay, cool. Now we're going to bring in the baseball players to, like, do the commercial with you. And you guys, and the director's like, I need you guys. Like, you have to hit your mark every time. There's no messing this up. They don't have much time. They have to be in and out. They have to go back to training and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, great. This guy, Joey Gallo, comes in. He was, they were, like, naming him, like, one of the best hitters last season in the whole MLB. I'm like, great. So he comes in. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> um, so, we're, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm like, there's, this guy's going to be judging my acting and stuff. Yeah. The guy's a baseball player. Like, he's not judging my acting. But that's the whole time going yeah. through my head. So I'm, like, going through it, and I'm, like, the director's, like, oh, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. I'm, like, crap. I am keep messing up. And um, then they were, like, what I'm forgetting was the baseball players that were messing up the whole time. And then Joey, the baseball player, he's, like, dude, how do you do this? He's, like... He's like, you hit that, you hit like your line and everything exactly the same every single time. It was perfect. He goes, dude, I have no idea how you do this. So I was like, um, I have no idea how you hit a baseball every single time. So we're even. Um, so yeah, so there's like that, you know, piece of it too. Um, and even in like, uh, and then the, there was another point you said about in like the list of the Moses stuff about you just, um, uh, you have to prove to like get some of the respect. So in my, my acting coaches, He's like a no BS type of guy. <laughs> and um, 
I, I was talking to my really good friend who's kind of like my support system in my acting world. She trains with me, and, and, and I was like, I feel like I'm going through this lull right now. Bill, Bill's my acting coach. Bill, like, doesn't respect any of the stuff that I'm doing. And she's like, well, you need to show up and do your prepare, and you need to show up and prove to him you know what you're doing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, good point. So I, okay. I literally came in that week, and I did it, and he texted me the next day. He goes, that was the best I've seen you ever do. And I was like, wow. Um, but just to add to that point. So there's, there's been a journey, clearly, yeah. then, in your life from showing up to auditions and just driving away mm -hmm. to realizing that, um, at least what I'm just kind of reflecting what I heard you say, to you get into the situation now, you're like, I put in the work, I paid my dues, I'm not just chatting it up, I'm staying focused about the audition, um, to being in high-pressure situations mm -hmm. where, like, the AD is like, you know, don't mess up in front of the baseball players, and then there was some perspective, it sounds like, because, you know, this right. major league player is like, dude, how do you do this? Yeah. And so um, you can see that clearly you are progressing in your own ability. You're teaching other people how to treat you. I mean, I see all these things playing out. Um, and, then, and then after the role, I mean, how have you, and just to wrap up, after the role, and I know, like, interviewing for jobs or career moves and all this kind of stuff, Walking away from a, from a role, walking away from an interview, how do you deal with the voices of self-doubt that be like, oh, man, I didn't do a great job there? Yeah, uh, so it continues after the role. <laughs> yeah. um, when they release the commercial, I watch it, and I'm like, uh, uh, they still made a mistake <laughs> hiring right, me. Right. Um, uh, sometimes I just need, like, some type of – I'm getting – I'm starting to see, like, the, the style, and I see – I mean, some, the early commercials I did, I, I didn't do that well, I don't think. I mean, people like it, but then I'm like, oh, yeah, you're not really, you know, you're just like, you go to church with me. You don't know what you're talking about or something like that, you know? <laughs> I was like, I, this is terrible, but you just like it because I'm in it. But, um, but I do, I mean, I've seen it get better, and I'm starting yeah. to get more confident. And sh I used to not even share the stuff that I would do because I didn't want people judging it. Yeah. Um, so that's get, it's getting better. Um, with that, but it literally, I mean, I was literally sitting in there being like, why is Ryan want me to come do this <laughs> chat up here? Because <laughs> I'm not really that cool. Um, well, you're, you're among good company here, Powell, if that's the case. <laughs> so you, yeah, feel right uh, at home. I thought about that when you were talking about the, the Harkins church thing. I was like, oh yeah, I've been worried about this interview all week because of this reason. Um, but yeah, really with everything. And, and the more I experience it and find out that it's okay, uh, yeah. And that I can do yeah. this, the, the the more my confidence level goes up. Um, I even have to try to fake the confidence sometimes, but yeah. I'm yeah. my work is like pay. It's paying off in my work. The 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 more confidence yeah. that I bring to it, and the less I doubt myself. Awesome, man. Appreciate you sharing. I mean, yeah. it's it's an amazing example of somebody who has to just crash through the self doubt and just make it happen. So let's uh, let's hear it for Drew Langhart. Thank, Thank you. you, man. Appreciate you sharing, man. And, and that brings us to Moses' last question. And finally, he just basically says, God, um, what if I just can't do what you've called me to do? He says, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. I just can't do this. And um, God gives him his brother to help him. And God says, I'm going to speak through you. I'm going to speak through him. He's going to be your mouthpiece, so you're not going to be alone. Again, there's community with you. And, and I'm going to provide for you. And God's answer to Moses was, I will help you, and I will provide other people to help you. God, I'm just not capable of doing this thing. I, this is a question about abilities. I just don't feel like I can do this. And God's answer was, I will help you and provide other people to help you. In the life of Moses and in your life and mine, this is how... Um, this process works of decluttering self-doubt, and it's really how faith works. When we're invited to put our faith in God and put our faith in friends, family, people who are supportive to us, what happens is as we put our faith in God, as we put our faith in other people who believe in us, then our, that faith actually empowers us to go do the thing that we thought we could never do. And so the ultimate example of that is AA. I've talked about this before. You have somebody who has the disease of alcoholism or drug addiction. And the disease has destroyed their lives. 
to the extent that they hurt the people they love. They're not there for them. They're not dependable. They want to be. They can't be. Maybe they're a functional alcoholic, or maybe they're not, and they lose a job, and life just falls apart. There are people who have the disease of alcoholism who beat their children. And the truth is they love their children, but they can't stop themselves. They are absolutely powerless in the clutches of this awful disease that has gripped their lives. And then they finally hit rock bottom. And then what do they do? They go to a meeting, an AA meeting or an NA meeting, and, and they say, step one, I'm powerless over this addiction in my life, and I'm going to put my, my life into the hands of a higher power, however I define that higher power. The truth is, that power could be Jesus Christ, that person or that power could be an alien from the planet Meepzorp. AA does not define who that higher power is. But that person puts their faith in a higher power. And they have other people around them who are telling their stories. This is how I put my faith in, and this is how my life's changed. And what happens? I just, I, I'm still, I, I chew over this from time to time in my life because it still just baffles me and fascinates me and thrills me how, how this happens in the life of a person. This person says, I'm powerless to do this. I'm going to put my life into the hands of a higher power. And then this individual who was a slave to picking up a beer bottle or whatever, and they beat their children, and their lives were completely destroyed. This person who was powerless over this thing puts the bottle down. And whose hand put the bottle down? Did, it, did a hand reach out of the sky? Did, did God's hand reach out of the sky and grab the bottle and put it down on the table? Was it somebody else? Was it the family members? Was it the children? Was it the people who did an intervention? Was it all the people who were, were, were dying inside trying to help this person? No. The, the, the hand that put the bottle down was the same hand that had picked it up. What changed? Faith. It's the power of belief. You could call it faith, belief, confidence. What changed that person's faith? They didn't have faith in themselves that they could do it or they would have put it down a long time ago. And so they put their faith in something else. But then what happened? This is just how it works. When you put your faith in something bigger than you, that superordinate identity, that your faith in God, what happens? That faith that you put in God now comes back to you. It's as though there's some kind of channeling. You, you put your faith in God and that, that faith comes back to you. And the same hand that picked the bottle up is the same hand that puts it down. And you can partner with God to make a difference with your life. You can live into your destiny like Marianne Williams talked about. One last example of this before we go. B.J. Davis um, is a substance abuse and, and mental health counselor. And he shared an incredible story uh, in a TED Talk about his life, about how other people can come alongside us and how we can put our faith in, in a higher power, yes, but having them speak into us, that God says to us, I'm going to be with you, that other people say to us, I believe in you and what, how that can change a person's life. So in 1999, he was in prison for the second time. He smoked crack twice a day for 10 years. And while he was in prison, his ex-wife sent him a letter informing him that his adoptive mother uh, had a heart attack and wasn't expected to make it. And his biological mother had given him up for adoption. This adopted mother had been the one who was there for him, who held him in her arms and he said he was crushed at the realization that he could not be by her side the way that she had been by his side. And he said that was the turning point in his life when he decided that it was time to change. It was time to get past self-doubt and, and, and time to allow something bigger to affect his life. And so he enrolled in a counseling program in a community college and discovered what happens when you're filled with self-doubt but other people believe in you. So let's watch 
uh, the rest of his story. It was then that I decided that I needed to try to change my life into something that I and my mother, wherever she might be, could be proud of. And a tiny seed of change was planted deep inside me. So after my release from prison, I decided I would go back to school. Because I figured, what better place can a middle-aged, 240-pound black ex-convict go (laughs) to blend in Then a white bread community college with a whole bunch of 20-something co-eds. <laughs> but I was fortunate. I was fortunate because at the local junior college where I landed, I ran into two instructors that changed my life. It was my interactions with these instructors that helped me to regain the self-worth and purpose and meaning and confidence that my drug use and drug-related lifestyle had stolen from me. I'll never forget the moment that I realized that I understood that I could create my own miracle. It all started when I went up to one of Professor Senna's office hours fishing for some special praise because that had become my new drug of choice. She listened to me describe some super cool thing I had just done. And with no pomp and circumstance, she looked at me and said, isn't it amazing, BJ, what a person can do when they start believing in themselves? And then as if nothing special had happened, she turned back to her desk and what she was doing. (laughs) Well, I walked away from that office hour dazed and confused and wondering what had happened. I was also a little pissed because she hadn't fed my new habit. But I was forced to think about What had happened and what did it mean? And importantly, that seed of change that was deep inside me started to stir. A couple months later, while taking a test, Professor Miller walked by my desk and dropped off an application that I later discovered was... um, to the Masters of Counseling program at Sacramento State University. So after the test, I hurried up to his office hour and run into his office and held up the application and very obtusely said, what's this? And without hesitation, he responded, I'm quite confident in your ability to read, so I'm sure you can figure that out on your own. So I brilliantly followed that up with an equally obtuse question. I said, so do you think I can do this? And with patience, but no special fanfare, he looked at me and said, of course. Of course. And then he too turned back around to his desk signaling that we were done. (laughs) And again, I stumbled away from an office hour, dazed and confused. But this time, the seeds of believing in myself that had been planted in my garden of self-doubt took root and started to grow. In a moment, I realized 
that the only person left to believe in me that needed to believe in me was me. As my tears started to well up in my eyes, for the first time since I had left prison, I felt free. After three years, I finally felt free of the mental and emotional shackles caused by the shame and the pain and the despair of my years of drug use. For years, I had been, I and people like me had been told, once an addict, always an addict. Once a criminal, always a criminal. Once a loser, always a loser. But I realized that was only true if you believed it. I have learned the hard way how paralyzing self-doubt can be. It contributes to people choosing misery over joy and emptiness over fulfillment and imprisonment over freedom and unnecessarily so. In 2006, only seven years after I walked off the yard at Corcoran State Prison, I walked across the stage and I was conferred my doctorate in clinical psychology. And sitting in the middle of the third row was a woman who had spent countless sleepless nights worrying about her son. That woman was my then 85-year-old mother who did not die while I was in prison. but lived to see me become the man she always believed I could be. Prior to 1999, this was my life. Without hope or purpose. Today, this is my life. Now, I want to say here, that I'm often frustrated when I hear people attribute a person's successful recovery or rehabilitation to a miracle, as if their hard work and perseverance had nothing to do with it. I needed to say that because it was regaining my belief in myself that gave me the power to change the direction of my life and is what allows me to now provide hope to others facing similar challenges. Because I'm living proof. I'm living proof that a person's past does not have to define their future. Now, You don't have to go to prison <laughs> to learn the lessons I have. In fact, I really wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but know this. We do have a choice whether we want to have our past define us or refine us. And as I tell the thousands of individuals struggling with addictions and other painful life challenges that come through our clinic, you don't have to wait 
for a miracle, you can create your own. Thank you. I love his statement. The only person left who didn't believe in me was me. And that was true of Moses. Is that true of you? It's been true of me. And somehow this is how faith works. God invites Moses to put his faith in God, and then God puts his faith in Moses. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to address all these self-doubts that you have. I'm going to help you take all this clutter out. And if you will, you believe in me, I believe in you. And we can partner together to make this happen. 